Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we could gather here this morning. Lord, uh, this is a special Sunday for us as a church, as it's a one-year anniversary uh, from when we began morning worship services. But God, every Sunday is a special Sunday that we could come into your presence and that we could worship you. We pray that you would be present with us today and, and, and that you would bring your word to us. Uh, not just words that we hear in our head, but Lord, words that your Holy Spirit takes and applies to our hearts. God, that we would trust you more fully, that we would love you more completely. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So one of the things that I have noticed in recent years is how it seems like they're changing the plots to movies where you can no longer be assured that a movie is going to have a happy ending anymore, right? It seemed like it used to be that you had the, the main characters of the movie that would sort of be attracted to one another or befriend one another and then there would be some conflict or tension and yet by the end of the movie... They were always resolved and reconciled and they lived together sort of happily ever after. But nowadays, that's not necessarily the case. It's not uncommon for there to be tension and strife amongst the main characters. And then the movie just ends. And you're thinking, what? What's up with that? Why is that the case? And, you know, I think some people would say, well, that's just a little more realistic, Pastor Rick. You know, that's just sometimes the way it works out. And, and that may be true, but there is sort of an unsatisfying sense about such a plot. And I wonder if it is that maybe we are hardwired to see relationships redeemed. If maybe that's just not who we are as made in the image of Christ. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why the book of Ruth is so compelling. You know, because it's an account of a family who falls upon difficult times. And it seems like that things go from bad to worse as the men uh, die and the ladies are left all alone. And, and not only that, but then they begin to sort of break apart and one daughter-in-law goes back to her people and it just leaves sort of Ruth and Naomi. And, and it just seems like things are very, very uh, tension-filled. That is until Boaz sort of enters the scene and, and he takes compassion upon them and he begins to provide for them. And Ruth uh, understands that he would, could be a redeemer for them. And so she approaches him about, you know, possibly being that redeemer. And, uh, and he uh, consents uh, to do that. But, but now, you know, we're sort of in that story where it's started, starting to get exciting. It's like, well, what's going to happen? And, and we see here as we sort of come to chapter four that there's a shift here. That where Naomi and Ruth have sort of been like in the forefront as main characters in the story, they just sort of drift to the back. And, and instead, you know, Boaz sort of comes to the forefront. As a matter of fact, really, in chapter 4, Ruth and Naomi don't even have any lines, per se. You know, they're there, and there's things that happen to them, but they're not really interacting. All the action, all the spotlight, all the attention is focusing on the activity of Boaz. And as we watch him act on behalf of Naomi and Ruth, you know, I want us to see three things here. 
You know, Boaz becomes for us sort of a picture of three things. And this is what I want to talk about today. He, comes, he, he becomes for us a picture of the kind of Savior that we need as people. The kind of Savior that we need. But also the kind of service that we owe. And then third, the kind of salvation that we receive. So the kind of Savior that we need, the kind of service that we owe, and the kind of salvation that we receive. So first of all, let's look at the kind of Savior that we need. Look at verse 1. You see here in verse 1, Boaz, uh, I don't know if he went straight from the threshing floor to the city gate or what, but he, we find him here at the city gate. And, uh, and as he's, he's there, he's waiting for this Redeemer to come that is a closer Redeemer than, than himself. Now, um, you know, man, Boaz is a man of his word. He said to Ruth, I'm, going to, I'm not going to rest until this situation is settled. And so he goes and he takes care of that. And so he goes to the city gate. Now, kids, cities today are not built like cities back then. Some of you probably came on to Andover from the east. You don't know what direction you came from, but your parents do. But some of you probably drove in from the east, some of you from the south, some of you from the north. You came from all different directions. But back in biblical days, what they would do with their cities is to protect themselves. They would build a wall around the city. Could you imagine if there was a wall all the way around Andover? But there would be a wall all the way around the city, and then they would have a gate and that was the way that you would get into the city. And at night, they would oftentimes close that gate just to make sure to keep the riffraff out and make sure that they were protected from their enemies. And, and that oftentimes the elders of the city would sort of congregate there around the gate. And so that when they talk about him going to the gate, it's really sort of equivalent to the city hall or the, the courthouse, if you would. And uh, it's a place where people would do business because what would happen is people would make contracts and what they would do is they would use the elders of the city. And the elders of a city were a lot like the elders of our church. They're the, the men who would sort of oversee and care for that city. They would, they would, uh, people would make contracts and they would use the elders as witnesses of these contracts so that somebody couldn't come back later and say, oh, well, I never said that. You know, the elders could say, well, we were there and we heard that and we knew that, that you did make that agreement. So, so that's what's happening. And that's why Boaz went to the city gate and he's waiting for this redeemer. And the redeemer comes into the, to the city and Boaz says, hey, friend, turn aside, come sit down. And he says to 10 of the elders here, why don't you guys come over and sit down as well? Because he was getting ready to make a contract with this uh, with this redeemer. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, then he said, you know, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab. She's selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that you might want to buy this land, you know, that you would want to redeem it because you're a closer relative than I am. You know, so Naomi needs to sell this land because she needed to raise money to live on. And the closest redeemer, he could buy that land to keep it in the family. Now, to appreciate what's going on here, I got to sort of explain a little bit about uh, the tradition of that day so you can understand this scenario. But, but typically, if a man were to step up as, as a kinsman redeemer, he would buy the land from Naomi and he would take Naomi as his wife. 
Okay? If Naomi bore the kinsman redeemer uh, any children, then those children would not be this husband's children. They would be Elimelech's kids. And so that meant that the land would actually belong to those kids. So this, kid, this redeemer would pay the money to Naomi for the land. He could use the land. He wasn't really actually purchasing it. He just had the rights to the land that he would use for a period of time. He could make a profit. But then when those kids became of age, as they got old enough, he would then ha uh, give the ownership of that land over to those kids. But you see, Naomi is old. And she's not going to bear any children. So if this man redeems the land and then Naomi dies, guess what? There's no kids. So who gets the land? The Redeemer does. And so this guy, he's looking at this thinking, this is a good deal. You know, and so in verse four, he said, yes, I'll redeem it. But, but Boaz is a rather shrewd man. And so he goes, well, OK. In verse 5, then Boaz says, Well, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So in other words, yes, you get the real estate, but it also comes with a mother-in-law, and it also comes with another woman, maybe that you didn't realize, that is Ruth, who would then become your wife, and she is young enough that most likely she will have children. And so you will have an obligation not only to pay for the land, but you also have to support this mother-in-law until she dies. And then you have a wife that you have to support as well. And the children that she bears, you have to pay money to support them as well. And you're doing all this off your hard-earned money, off your dime. And then when the kids get old enough, then you've got to give the land back to them. And so really you end up with nothing. Well, it was at this point that the kinsman redeemer says, well, in verse 6, he says, you know, I can't redeem this for myself unless I impair my own inheritance. In other words, this is going to cost money out of my pocket. This is not going to help me out. And so the redeemer said that, you know, realizing that he would end up with nothing to show for it, says, yeah, I think I'll pass. So what once seemed like, a you know, you just can't miss kind of real estate type deal, he realized that... Uh, that this wasn't going to work out to his benefit. You know, uh, that he was only interested in ministry to the poor if there was some payoff as a result of that. And he wasn't, he wasn't interested in ministry unless he benefited from it somehow. But, but Boaz isn't like that at all. And so when the man tells Boaz, well, Boaz, you can redeem it. Boaz quickly performs the little ritual that we see in in verses 7 and 8, and he goes, okay, he said, I'll take it. And of course, to seal the deal, it used to be, kids, uh, whenever you made a contract with somebody, you didn't always sign a piece of paper saying, I'm going to keep my commitment. You just come up to somebody and you'd shake their hands. And if you shook on it, that was just like signing a paper today. Actually, it even meant more than that, because today people will sign papers and then they'll file lawsuits to try to get out of it. You know, but if you shook somebody's hand, it was a done deal. And you had to keep your word. And people would lots of, lots of times. So in this, in this uh, culture, they didn't shake hands on it. One guy would take his sandal off. I don't know why, but they would take a sandal off and he would give it to the other guy. And that's just like saying, we shook on it. I don't know what you would do with somebody's sandal, but that's what they did. So, so he, he, he signed this. And then 
Boaz looked at the elders and he said, you guys are witnesses that this is a done deal. So he not only bought the field, but Boaz also won Ruth to be his wife. And, and he will be the one then to preserve Elimelech's name and that of his sons as well. So Boaz will uh, have to bear the cost. What th This would have cost the other redeemer. It will co cost Boaz just as much, but he was glad to do it. Whereas the other redeemer would not risk his, his own personal wealth, Boaz is prepared to commit everything to redeem Naomi and Ruth and secure the name of the family of Elimelech. And brothers and sisters, isn't that the kind of redeemer that we have? You know, a redeemer who rescues us at his own great cost. And I wonder sometimes if we don't sort of forget that, if we don't just sort of take it for granted, the kind of redeemer that we have, one who loved us and has given himself for us. And I want you to see here what, what Boaz is doing. You know, Boaz is, is actually committing a transaction on the behalf of Ruth and Naomi. And that is what our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done for us. I think sometimes we look at our own sinful hearts and the words that we speak or the things that we do. And we just think, oh, I don't know that I'm worthy. But what I want you to see is what your Redeemer has done. It's a done deal. If he died for you, he has purchased you. And he is a redeemer who pursues you. Just like Boaz said, I'm not going to rest until this is done. So our Lord Jesus Christ does the same. Now, I know that there are other false redeemers, if you would, empty religions and and things that this world calls us to pursue. They could be good things, even like our family, making our family a priority above Christ or maybe our intellect or a job or whatever it might be. But we have one who has loved us and given himself for us. Uh, he is the one who, as the word says, who thought he w uh, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. He is the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So it's not just any death, but it is a painful, torturous death. He is the one who, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, Though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he has secured our justification freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he is our redeemer. He bears all the cost of our salvation. We pay nothing for that. He incurs all the obligation, even paying the cost of his lifeblood, at Calvary. So you've, if you are here today and you have been chasing the wrong Redeemer, that will never end well. It is Jesus. He is the Savior, the kind of Savior that we need. But because He is our Savior, there is a kind of service that we owe to Him. You know, throughout Scripture, it talks about uh, uh, names being blotted out. And that's never a good situation whenever that's the case because it's symbolic of the curse and the condemnation of God to have your name blotted out. And we see examples of that throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy 9.14, uh, in his wrath, God threatened to blot out the name of Israel under the earth. In Psalm 109, verse 13, the psalmist talks about 
uh, those being uh, blotted out. He says, may hit, talking about the wicked, he said, may his uh, posterity be cut off and may his name be blotted out in the second generation. And you know, that's what, what happened here. This, this closer redeemer, this one that could redeem even before Boaz, he could have redeemed Elimelech and his sons and kept their names from being blot out, from being forgotten. But he chose not to do so. And you know what I think is ironic? We never know this guy's name. As a matter of fact, the passage is very careful to not, to not give us his name. As a matter of fact, you know, it, where it says, uh, Boaz said, friend, turn aside and let's talk. Actually, if you sort of translated that phrase in the Hebrew, it's sort of equal to our English, Mr. So-and-so. In other words, it's, it's really not a complimentary thing. And so his name is blotted out. So there's two redeemers, one who serves himself and has no name. And Boaz, on the other hand, serves others selfishly, and his name is never forgotten. You know, according to the tradition of the Leverite law, then the children that was born to, to Boaz and to Ruth became her dead husband's children. But what's interesting is, is in the book of Ruth, it doesn't record it that way. It records it as Boaz's son and Ruth's son. And so he is a man whose name is not forgotten. It sort of reminds you of what Jesus said in John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that's the message that's given us today in terms of our service. Whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. Whoever seeks to make a name for himself, his name will be forgotten. But whoever doesn't will be like Boaz. And that's what we're called to in the Christian life as well. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your calling to be like Christ. To pour out your life is a drink offering un unto him. Um, we often evaluate our involvement in ministry according to the, the same scale that, that the first Redeemer sort of uses. You know, we ask ourselves, well, what's in it for me? You know, will it fulfill me? Will I enjoy it? What, what will it cost me? You know, what will I have to give up that I really like if I do this ministry, especially if it's ministries that are very awkward, especially those ministries that what I would say is oftentimes more front line with unbelievers, whether that be evangelism or sometimes even that's mercy ministry uh, out in the community. There's a sense in which we oftentimes sort of shy away from those things because we find those things very difficult. But when we do so, when we forget that... Um, that we are called to a life of service, it's because we forget that Jesus Christ calls us to the same service that he was willing to give to us, to redeem us. He calls us to do that same thing for God's people and for the lost world in which we live. But so often we leave God out of the formula and we forget what he has done for us. We think of our lives just in terms of how I need to protect my time and what I need to do so I can do the things that I want to do. But God wants us to see that in his kingdom, the way to fullness and contentment comes through emptying ourselves. 
emptying ourselves of the things that we want to do. It's only when we give up what we want and what we're hanging on so carefully that we will find true satisfaction. And so because we have such a, a great Savior uh, who calls us to serve us, we also see the kind of salvation that we receive as well. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act uh, worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Basically, the people were, were singing a, a, a blessing upon Ruth and Boaz that, that she might be like Tamar. Now, um, Boaz was a direct ancestor of Judah, but uh, they were saying to Ruth, may you be like Tamar. Now, Tamar was a Gentile as well, if you look back at Genesis and the account there of that. But, and she, was, she also, uh, like Ruth, bore a child. Perez through a Leverite marriage, but she did so, unlike Ruth, she did so in a deceptive, manipulative way. And part of that was because the Redeemer was not willing to fulfill his obligation, but still, nonetheless, she was very manipulative about it. Unlike Ruth, who was very godly and, and pure and of integrity in the way that she went about it. But what, what is it that, uh, that we see here well, we see that uh, even though Tamar acted in that way, she still was a part of the covenant line uh, that the Messiah came from. And they were asking for a blessing upon Ruth that she might be like that. But not only like Tamar, but also like Rachel and Leah, who were sort of matriarchs of the nation of Israel and, and how the house of Israel was built up. And so, in essence, they were saying to her, you know, may she... Uh, be a blessing to Israel. Now, do you understand what they're saying? I mean, they are taking and comparing Ruth to matriarchs, but she's a Moabitess. This is of the nation that God said, don't even let a Moabite be part of your congregation. And yet now they are singing this blessing upon her, saying to her, you belong. You are as much a part of our nation as Rachel and Leah. And may the Lord use you in such a way uh, that he will bless his people. And so Ruth, who was once the outsider, is now the Ruth who's the insider. But I want you to understand why she is that way. She is that way because of what the kinsman redeemer has done for her. That he has, he has purchased her. And that's really what the Lord has done for all of us, has he not? And that's, uh, he takes us from the outside and he brings us all the way in to relationship with him and to the family of God. I mean, think about what God's word says, where it says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
You see, when we come to trust in Jesus Christ, we stop being a stranger to God and His people. So no matter how far outside we may feel that we are, through Jesus Christ, there is a way to the family of God and the household of God. You see, the gospel makes sinners saints. It forgives the guilty. It cleanses the dirty. It releases the captive. You know, brothers and sisters, if you look at the, the gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of that gospel is a genealogy. And guess who's mentioned there in that genealogy? It's Ruth. along with Tamar and others as well. But Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But also in Matthew's Gospel, you read how the angel came to Joseph and said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then later on in Jesus' ministry, he says about himself, he said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, when Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he didn't come all decked out in special protective clothing as if he was like a scientist suited up to to deal with the bubonic plague samples. You know, he came as he was. He came into this world naked. He came into this world unprotected. He came into this world as a, a part of a family who came from a long line of sinners. Jesus became known as one who was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, When he died upon the cross, he was flanked by two thieves. So Jesus went out of the world the same way that he arrived, both naked and unprotected. Now why would the Lord of the universe expose himself to such pain and humiliation? It's because that's how he would save sinners. He would not save them by staying at a safe distance from them, but only by coming alongside them and identifying with them. In order to save them, Jesus had to be their friend and then ultimately perform the greatest act of friendship there is, and that is to lay down his life for them. Do you understand that? Do you hear that? What awesome love the Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated for us On the cross. Truly, it was amazing love because it wasn't shown to people who were lovely. We think we're lovely, but we are not. We are people who struggle with sin. We are people that think thoughts that we ought not to think. We are people who do things that we ought not to do. We despise others. We put them down. We ignore them. We exalt ourselves above other people. And then we think we're wonderful. But it's for such people that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. Now, some of the sins that we commit are large and some of them that we commit are small. But the reality is is that all of our sins are enough to condemn us for all eternity. And so my question for us today is, do you know the love of Jesus Christ? Do you know that love? Do you know the love that reaches out to make outsiders insiders. If you do, praise God. Not just in this worship service, but as you leave today, praise God that He has shown you that love. But brothers and sisters, there are many people out there who don't know that love. They still think that somehow they'll be good enough 
that they can get to heaven, or that God will flex his standards enough that, you know, on the end day, yeah, he'll let them squeak in. When such people are doing well and trying to live a good life, their efforts leave them secretly uh, a little impressed at how wonderful they are. When they are struggling, though, their failing efforts leave them angry and despairing. But either way, their eyes are fixed on themselves and they feel like they are the hope of life after death. But brothers and sisters, there's no room in Jesus' kingdom for people who are impressed with themselves or people who fix their eyes upon themselves. The door to God's kingdom is open only to those who know that they have nothing to offer God. It is open only to outsiders like Ruth, to those who have utterly despaired of making any sense of their life. That's the ones that Jesus Christ takes. But God doesn't leave us as he found us. As we look at Naomi, we see that when we open our hearts to God, that we will discover that he has already been at work in our hearts. That's why our hearts are open to God. But he will continue to work in us until he makes us over and he does the change that is necessary in our lives. God does not just improve us. God changes us. And he makes us new. But like Ruth, too, as well, he takes us who were once outsiders and he makes us insiders. Now, kids, it is so easy for you to think that you're an insider because you've grown up in the church and you think, I belong. But the reality is, we're not. It's only as God works in our hearts that he draws us to himself. And I wonder, can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our churches and in our homes. People who are outsiders, do they find themselves welcome in our churches and our homes? Are they places where the last, the least, and the loss can come without feeling looking down upon? Or are churches safe places where people whose lifestyles are notorious in the community can come without being stared at and judged? You know, I think of the quick trip gas stations, right? They're safe places. You know, if you're in trouble and you need a police officer, you can go to a quick trip because it's a safe place. And I think, is that the same? Is Kirk of the Plains a safe place? Is that a place where someone who is broiled in a lifestyle of sin and is unrepentant could come and they would be welcomed? Now, I'm not talking about Christians who are unrepentant, but I'm talking about unbelievers who come. Could they come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all the sinners go? Or are we good only at welcoming those who are already somewhat religious, those who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community? Are we, welcome, are we willing to welcome people who are very different from us, who make us feel very awkward? Brothers and sisters, there is a serious challenge here for each of us as we ponder this. Each of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through the church doors. Will we welcome them? Will anyone sit with them or speak with them after the service? When people walk in the door, will we just sit in our seats and sort of leave them on their own to find their own seats? Will we make it a little difficult instead of being inviting, we sort of challenge them to try to break in to our fellowship? Or will we look at them and make eye contact and say, here, 
Come sit down beside me. Or if there's not room because they've got too many people in their family or too many people in the crowd, then we'd say, hey, you know, why don't you come sit down in my seat? And we get up and we walk elsewhere. Are we a people who are always inviting people in that they might come and they might hear of Jesus Christ? Or are we a people who are very comfortable and we're thinking only of ourselves and we're not really uh, so welcoming? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? Will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? Brothers and sisters, this is what the Lord has done for each and every one of us. He is the Redeemer behind each of our own personal salvation stories. He sought each of us while we were utterly lost. Not only does He make us feel valuable, but in Christ, God actually makes us valuable. Do you hear that? It's not just a feeling, but He actually changes us and He makes us part of His family. He makes us precious in His sight. It's not just Ruth's story that turned out to be part of a much bigger narrative than she ever imagined, but your story and my story are also woven into the bigger tapestry of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He has seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, exalted us along with Him to the glories of heaven, and made us co-heirs with Him and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. In Him we have been given a glorious genealogy. We are children of God. And though we in our sin wandered away empty and become hard-hearted and bitter like Naomi was, He has brought us back Indeed, he has brought us back to himself. He has made sure and certain that in Christ, each of our stories has a good and a happy ending. That there is a sense in which we are reconciled in our relationships. And as we come to him, he enables us to find rest for our souls in his house forever. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads as we meditate upon the word of God that was preached. Our Lord and God, we thank you and praise you as we come this Lord's Day to be reminded of your great work of salvation in our hearts. Lord, as, as a church, we're here to s celebrating today what you have done in the past and how over the last three years you have worked at a point to bring us to where we are. And we rejoice in that. But God, we know you're not done. We know that you are continuing to bring people into the fold, that, Lord, you are continuing to work in our hearts that we might understand the salvation that we have, that we might, Lord, delight in that, delight in you, to rejoice and to walk in who we are in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would truly open our eyes this week to see the glories of the riches that we have. Lord, as we prepare to, to go into our, our new series on Ephesians, we pray that you would use that book, uh, Lord, to cause us to, to delight in who we are as your people. And Father, I pray that you would so uh, work in our hearts to open our eyes to those ways in which we create obstacles for people to come to you. I pray that we would repent of our sins. That God, that our, our motion would always be towards people to share you and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would bring revival in our city and in the communities around here that we represent, that you would bring revival in our country, Lord Jesus, that the church would not be about all the programs and the buildings and and trying to attract people in, but that we would be about sharing Jesus Christ. And I pray and ask for your Holy Spirit to bring glory to your name as your salvation is revealed to countless people who now are walking in disobedience to you, that they might come to faith in you and grow and give glory and praise to you, O God, not just now in our churches, but for all eternity. May they be counted with a number that will give praise to you for all eternity. It is in your name we pray. Amen.